Welcome back to Out of Your League, everybody. Uh, we are in, John, the surroundings of the Hideout Youth Zone in East Manchester in Gorton. And we are joined by the one and only Mr. Fred Doan with his croc crocodile skin shoes, John. They're very nice. Well, and his what... Manchester City coloured top, which is quite controversial. <laughs> well, let's forget about the Man City coloured top, but we'll focus very heavily on the shoes. If we could get a tight close-up <laughs> of the shoes, avoiding my shoes and definitely, <laughs> definitely avoiding your yeah. shoes. You should always judge someone by their shoes. Do, that's what, is that that's right? What women say, yeah. That's the first that's one of the what, first things they look at. That's what women say. It's true. Said yeah. Will Perry. It's how, cleaner, <laughs> it's how they clean them, not how much they pay for them. <laughs> <laughs> Are you not just wear them once, throw them away, Fred? Or how long have you, no, no. Not like, no, no. <laughs> not getting away from your work. I'm not that extravagant. I can't afford to do that. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated, Fred, about your, your life, your story, where you're still going, where you've come from. Um, so in, in sort of old typical fashion, let's go right back to the beginning. What was, what was childhood like for a young Mr. Fred Doan? Well, I, um, I come from Salford, from the Odsall district of Salford, which is considered or was considered one of the hardest places uh, in Salford. Mm -hmm. And Salford w wasn't a pussycat anyway, as you know. Um, it was working class. Um, we were poor people, but mm. all the street was poor, so you didn't feel poor. You played football in the street, or rugby uh, on the croft, mm -hmm. and it was good. I mean, um, we had nothing to spare, and there was uh, four kids sleeping in uh, one bedroom, two girls, two boys. Mm. Um, I mean, we, the joke used to be that I could swim before I was five because one of them used to pee in the bed. <laughs> Um, but but it, it was poor, but it was happy, and yeah. all the neighbours were good. And we never had any problems at all. Yeah, humble upbringing, but good memories. Tough times at times, or um, I wouldn't even say tough. We didn't know what tough was. We just lived there. You know, you just got on with your life there. Mm. And um, I, I would dare to say that it could be tougher these days with what goes on with drugs and estates and gangs and all yeah. the rest. Of it. I mean, we had gangs in those days, mm. but I never suffered from them. You know, I was part of it. Um, I can't complain about my youth. Yeah. It, it was good. I think, isn't that interesting, though? Fred describes the almost a lack of awareness about what else was out there in, in life. Right. And I think, you know, in the modern era now, we're all so acutely aware of everybody else, you know, about what everybody else is doing. Mm. You know, people are flying here, people are on holiday there. And it's quite difficult in this day and age to have that you know, that, that, that purity of, of just understanding, you know, what you're about and not being polluted by yeah. social media without getting on a rant about social media again. Oh, we can get there at some stage. I want to, we need to get Fred on Instagram, I think, by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> Fred, I think it's fair to say you hated school. I hated school, probably because I was no good at school. Right. Uh, I, was, I was never an academic. Everything I've learned, I've learned after school. Mm. Um, I went to Trafford Road, uh, and the, the name for the uh, Trafford Road School was The Dungeons, because it was built on stilts, <laughs> and we called it The Dungeons. But I just, it wasn't, school wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, I left at school at 15, um, went into an engineering company in uh, Eccles called uh, Gardeners. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a draftsman, and I hated every second of being a draftsman. Mm -hmm. I lasted six months. And then the opportunity came along to go into the gambling business at 15 and a half. Well, it was still illegal at that time, 1959. Yeah. It became legal in 1961. But believe me, if it's illegal, you quickly learn. Because mm. if you don't learn, you get bit. Yeah, but you, but you, I mean, even three years before that, at 12, you were having a go, weren't you? 
12 hours on a bike, getting commission off my dad, who was an Ill illegal bookmaker, going around the pubs and the factories. So that was like a side hustle for him. That was a, he had a job, and that, he did that on the side. No, no, no. He, he never had a job. He, uh, he was an illegal bookmaker full time. Right. And what he would do, he would. One week we were flying around Blackpool on a little plane. Mm. The second he was pawning in his suit because they weren't <laughs> they weren't businessmen. They were bookmakers, and they they did it. it I always refer to it, which is wrong now, as the game. It's the yeah. business, but yeah. that's how it was called. The, I mean, the game. Um, but they were exciting times. Yeah. I mean, the, um, when I was 15 and a half, working in uh, one of the illegal shops, a policeman came, two policemen, a sergeant and a constable came round, and I actually saw them getting the, the bribe. Because that's the way it was done. Yeah. You had to bribe the police. And the police would say, get him out of here. So I'd get out of the shop, come back. When I say a shop, it was in a backyard. Mm. And uh, punters would come in, they'd write the bets on a scrap of paper, no receipts. We did not give a receipt. You know, you'd say, what's your name? Charlie Two, and you'd pay him on that. Because, yeah. Why didn't you have receipts? Because you didn't want the police to find them. <laughs> you didn't want them tracing. But you, you've got a huge association, obviously, today with, with Rugby League, and we're going to get there to, you know, towards the end. I know you've been sponsoring Betfred, the, the Super League, since 2017. Back then, obviously, and still to this day, massive Manchester United fan, that the Busby Babes made your eyes light up, and you used to go and watch Manchester United as a kid. But I'm interested, you, you used to go to, tell me if I'm wrong, to the Willows. And you used to sort of facilitate bets there, and, oh, you and, 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 and you had a good, you got a good story where you actually made a bit of money out of this. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know who's, you, who's been telling you these stories, but it's absolutely true. It's true. It's coming. When I, when I was probably eight, nine, we used to have what was called a sweep, and what you'd do, you'd put fifty numbers in a bag, one to fifty. But if the score. Uh, and the, the way you would pay out, if Salford were playing Wigan and the score was 20 30, mm. uh, you'd pay on number 50. But if it was 20 52, 32, you'd pay out on, still on number 50 because Salford in those days weren't the greatest club in the world. Yeah. So the scores added together, if nobody won it, you would pay on number 50. You didn't keep the money yourself. So what you would do, you'd, pay, you'd take 25. Uh, 50 bets in at sixpence a time, so it's £1.25. Mm -hmm. You'd pay a pound out, so you'd made uh, five shilling, which was 25p then, yeah. which sounds peanuts, but to me it was pocket money. But also, when you took it to the winning customer, they usually get, used to give you a shilling as a tip. But I used to keep number 50 for me. Because four times, five times a year, Salford would get beat <laughs> and the score would be over 50. And I was, so you kept that one out for yourself. <laughs> now, that is what I'm talking about when you're thinking. And it was Ill not illegal what I was doing then. Yeah. I was looking after myself. <laughs> There's a difference. But it, it made you, I call it cute. Mm. You understood, you knew, looked at the angles for everything. And even to this day, um, I look for... All the time, I look for value. Mm -hmm. And as a player, if the odds are not on my side, I don't want to play. If they're on my side, I'll play with anybody. This is, John, what I'm really fascinated about yeah. with Fred. And you could actually do a whole hour, two-hour podcast on, you know, despite all the business ventures that you've had and that you're still going to take on over the next 20 years that you're still with us, Fred, and hopefully more, um, the art of bookmaking, you've, all, you've always been in love with. That's always been your true passion. 
tell us about where, where that obviously you know watching your dad doing what he did but just even you talking there I can see your eyes lighting up about the, the skill and the art of it you, you know um, I didn't go into bookmaking because I enjoyed it I went into it for a job mm. but then it grew on me and without sounding too conceited I was good mm-hmm. and when I was 20 why, why were you good why were you good though I just got involved and I got the love for, for the business and I studied it and uh, I looked at value all the time. Everything that I do is, is value for money and I do it for the long term. I don't care whether a customer wins one day, one week, one month, as long as over a 12-month period I win. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I've done it. If the odds are stacked in your favour, you've got a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you what separated me from... Uh, other bookmakers but I was different and I still think even to this day I am a bit different yeah a bit crazy people say but um, it's in your fingers you just know when something's right and when something's wrong and I'd look at I'd look at the going and the going was very very heavy and punters in those days didn't have the information that they've got these days because they can get it on the internet yeah. on odds checker mm. betfair they had none of that yeah so we had it stacked in our favor completely i'd look i'd see the rain coming down and i know at Newmarket on saturday the going was going to fet lot deep that's when i would push the odds out and give everybody great value for money knowing that I had every chance. He didn't know what the going was like in '96 under the Tory, did he? We, we, we don't think we want to talk about that day. What, a, what an incredible! Oh, oh, that was a special day. That incredible. One. You were I, hungover, sat watching it at home. It all unravelled. Yeah, I mean, if you want a, a, a two minutes of, of Tory, every Saturday morning, including now, I work, and I'd get in the office at half past eight and finish about eleven o'clock. <clears throat> it was a beautiful day. Uh, I went in the office, we fixed the odds up, and we give great bonuses on Yankees, Canadians, Lucky 15s, etc. I went home and I was tired. I'd been out the night before uh, on, the, uh, on the juice. <laughs> and uh, I just lay on the bed, just watching TV. And I got a phone call from uh, my head trader then. He said, we've got 20 grand for Mark of Esteem in this next race at 7-2. to two. He said, and he was just about to put the phone now. I said, oh, and by the way, it'll be no good because Detouris rolled the first two winners. So the phone goes down. Mark of Esteem wins the race. First time in years and years and years, they said, can you come back to the office? Yeah. Um, he was the most popular jockey. It was on TV. It was Asker. Everything was, uh, you know, when you say perfect storm, it was the perfect storm for a disaster. So we got back to the office, he rides the fourth winner. My brother Peter, who's not been in our business for years and years, phones me up and says, see, Detori's rolled the first four winners. What's it like? I said, I don't know what it's like, but it's bad. And at that time, we had about 200 shops. We didn't have computers. And what was happening, the shops were trying to phone in to tell me what the liabilities were. But all the lines were blocked because it was just chaos. And anybody who told, tells you that they had it under control that day, Elias, Willie Mills, Ladbutz, Corals, they did not have it under control. Nobody did. But your face, you had to pretend that you did. <laughs> so the last thing I wanted to show to my staff that I was nervous, uh, so I braved it out. And we saw the fifth one win, the sixth one win, Incredible. and then the seventh one win, which I couldn't believe. 
So then I put a phone call to all the shops. Do not close the shops tonight. Phone in and tell me what you've lost or what the liabilities are still to pay. And we lost, I'd guess, something like three or four million quid that day. A lot more than that. It, 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 it was, when I knew the figure that we'd lost, I was happy yeah. because I knew I was still in the business. And I said to my brother, how much can we raise in the next week, cash? And we, we estimated that we could get pull five million together. Yeah. So we knew, I went out and had a drink that night and yeah. dinner with my wife and it was no problem. Because that could have finished you. it, Fred, couldn't it, that day? That could have been the end of you. Oh, it could have been, quite easily. And it could have been the end of everybody in the business because we didn't, it was out of control. Yeah. It was simple as that. I mean, it, it was headlines on the front pages of all the Sunday newspapers, not the back pages, the yeah. front pages yeah. about his, the Detour is seven. So the following day, which was the Sunday, mm -hmm. We'd got all the, we had microf uh, microfilm those days just to make sure that all the bets were all on time, etc. I wrote a, a checkbook of 50 checks. The smallest check was 10,000. The biggest check was 200,000. Mm. We wrote them all out. We bought champagne and cigars <laughs> for the men, flowers and champagne for the ladies. Yeah. By Monday night, we'd paid out everybody. The following week, I went, then went and bought two bookmakers who had gone broke. Yeah. So every cloud has a silver lining, we went out and, you know, if you see an opportunity there, and, and I still believe this, that every day the market is open, there's a new way to make money, and, but you've got to be brave sometimes, you've got to think, it's not the end of the world, we're going to do it again. I think one thing that, look, I've read a bit about you, and, and you know, you say there, the winning bets, the checks that you paid out, you sent cigars and, and, and champagne for the fellas, and flowers and champagne for the, for the women. And I think when you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, betting has gone from being illegal to being quite backyard, sort of very basic, to then you guys approaching it with customer service, like trying to actually treat people well. Like where, where did the inspiration to start working like that come from? What, what, what gave you the sort of understanding to think that, my, that was good? My first love is the shops rather than the uh, online business. I mean, we've got a good online business, but because of my age and my background, shops were my, have been my life. Um, in the old days, bookmakers had a philosophy and they used to say to a customer, they did, it was like, skin them and stamp on them. Mm. That's what they used to say, skin them and stamp. Have no mercy to, to <laughs> punters. I took a different view. Give them service, say thank you, say please. Give them a smile, and when you pay them out, pay them out with a smile. Yeah. And that's why we were well, good. that's why you got the name, the Bonus King, and that's, the, that's part of the, the, bet the bonus brand, king. isn't it? Exactly, the yeah. Bonus King. The value, like you, you mentioned the word value, and that is a key, key clinical word in your whole career in yeah. life, isn't it? If you, uh, I still work on a Saturday morning, and every single Saturday morning I say to the customer, you know why you come in my shop? Value, value, value. I'm the B&M stores, I'm the Aldi, I'm mm. the Lidl, I'm the Primark. I'm not Marks and Spencers. Yeah. Come into me and you'll get value. But also, Fred, I hear so many people who've not only worked with you, but, you know, just punters who've put bets on, they feel they get value, win or lose, and that's a big difference, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. And you know a man will take six to one and it starts four to one, even if it gets beat, mm. 
you don't feel that bad about it yeah. because he's beat me on the odds. <laughs> Look, uh, it's, it's my job to try and get as much in as possible in the next hour. We want to keep you as long as we can. Um, and I've got a weird OCD thing where I try to do it as chronologically as possible. We've already gone all around the houses and that was my fault for, for mentioning 96 because we've jumped forward a few years. You mentioned your brother, Peter. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, and I know you said no questions are off limits and tell me to shut up if we're getting too nosy. What was, what was life like as kids with you two? Because originally you were, you know, Doan brothers and, and I want to go back even further back before we speak about Peter because you actually, you left school with a thousand pounds in your pocket. Yeah, well, this was 1857 yeah. uh, as well, Fred. That, that was a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> what, does that, what does that equate to in these days? Oh, I, I can't tell you the number, but it's a lot of money. No kid ever left school with a thousand pounds. How did he do it? What I said before, the sweeps with Salford, yeah. which sounds nothing. I used to take bets to a, a, a bookmaker in Salford called Albert Crossley. The, Albert Crossley thought he was dealing with mugs because I was going in with the bets. <laughs> it was professionals who were putting it on and Albert Crossley was paying me 12.5% commission. And I was making fortunes, fortunes by my standards, yeah. fortunes meaning eight or nine quid a week. But well, that, was, then that was a hell of a lot but, of money. But yeah. when you think, when I, I started in 19, uh, 1967 on my own, mm. I dropped my wages, because I was working for a Salford bookmaker, I dropped my wages from £22 to £20 a week because I wanted to survive in my, on my own. And I was the highest paid employee in the company at 22 quid a week. Mm -hmm. So if I, as a kid, I was earning eight and nine pound a week. You can see what it was. Half a man's wage. Yeah. And, and, and mentioning Peter there, then what was your relationship like as brothers? Because you've been lifetime business partners, pretty much. Um, and, you know, even just from the outside, uh, and I've heard Peter speak about this before, but you changed the name to Betfred in 2004 before you were the Doan brothers. I mean, he, and he took that kind of quite well and said it was a great, great business decision. And clearly it's worked out. What's your relationship like today? And is, is it more business partners than brothers? Let me tell you this. Peter phones me up or I phone him up. We speak three times a week. Dear. The relationship is no different now than when we were kids. Amazing. Um, we went to the same school. If we got in a fight, or Peter got in a fight, and he tried to back out of the fight, I used to push him back in. I would not <laughs> let him not fight. I was the big brother. He was, even when I started uh, courting, he wanted to follow me around. Mm. We, Peter and I are probably as close as any brothers you'll ever see. Mm. Um, both have got 100% trust in one another in judgment. Peter has never questioned anything that I've ever done in business. And I think probably the good thing between us is Peninsula, the business that he runs now, when we split up, we split up because the biz Peninsula was a nightmare. Uh, we, we employed people in it who were the, completely the wrong people. And I won't go into it chapter and verse, but mm. they were the wrong people. Peter had never done a sale in his life. Mm -hmm. And we were told how difficult it was to sell the product. The first week he started there, he got five appointments. He went and did three deals. And Peter never came back to the betting business. And if I can tell you about Peninsula, Peninsula probably employs 4,000 people around the world. We're in, by far the biggest, by a million miles in the UK. We're in New Zealand, we're in Australia, we're in Canada, we're in Ireland. And he's done a fantastic job. We're still partners. And more than that, we're still brothers. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the 60s there, and that date just made me think of the story that 
you left school with your thousand pounds and obviously you know, a hell of a lot of money, but to get the, the shops going in, to get the business going back then, you had a bet on England winning the World Cup in 1966. And in 1967, a year later, you, you opened your first shop with that cash. I mean, had again, that not happened. Isn't it amazing in life that all these little pieces have to fit together? Little things like that. Um, if I can just put it in context, we had 200 pounds on uh, England at eight to one. Mm. Probably the heart was ruling the head. But why did I back them? Because they, I wouldn't have backed them if they'd been playing in any other country. But I knew the final was at Wembley and knew they'd have the crowd with them, so I put me 200 quid. Yeah. But that was 10 weeks' wages for me, which wow. is a big deal if you think yeah. about it. 10 weeks' wages. Yeah. There's not many people who want to do that. Anyway, they came in and they won. And then our, the opportunity to buy our first shop came on, and the guy wanted £4,000 for it. Um, £4,000 was like, it was enormous. I, I kidded the guy that, uh, yeah, we're going to do it, etc., etc. Thought about it over the weekend, managed to raise, including the, 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 um, the, the cash that you've got there. You, we're talking about there, 1,600 quid. Mm. Went back to him on the Monday, said, Mr. Fletcher, I can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because I can't raise the cash. He said, I'll give you a mortgage for £2,000. He said, I want 10% on my money. My first job every week on a Monday morning was to send him a cheque for 20 quid. And that's the way uh, Betfred began. Wow. It's interesting as well that because when we talk about money these days, people can have an opinion of it. And, and you now, Fred, and tell me if I'm wrong, you know, money is not your motivator at all because you know you live a nice, comfortable life, but you're more about doing things which inspire you every day and working with people and keeping yourself young and fit and still smashing the gym at 79, aren't you, I think, so I'm told. Yeah. Um, but back then, you were obsessed with money. So where did that, where did that obsession come from? I can't, I can't tell you that. Um, the one thing that I would say to you, I always wanted to work for myself. And probably now I'm totally unemployable um, <laughs> because I do things my way. And, and it's not always the right way, but it's my way and I can't help it that and I can't change it. It's been successful and we, uh, without, without crowing too much, we've mm. been successful in most of the businesses that we've done with mm. construction, development, insurance, gambling, peninsula. Um, and, and it's a good ride, and I enjoy it so much. When, when, you first started, when we first started in the business, it wasn't to build an empire. It was to feed a family, and we were good at it. And we could have, we could have remained in one shop and had a nice, comfortable existence. But, but then I got the bug about development and seeing things progress, and probably... I'm more ambitious now than when, when I was 24. Was that a, a sort of motivation of underdog? And you can come in on this one as well, John, because you, you, know, you, you took on the establishment, didn't you? I think in the 80s, you had, mid-80s, you had 70 shops. Today, you've got around, what, 1,700 shops. Yeah. Um, but you took on your William Hill, your Corals, your, your Ladbrokes. Yeah. And there was the, you know, almost like, and look, I know you've done well out of it as well, but being an underdog and, and being the little boy from Salford and taking on the big boys was a big motivator. Yeah, you know, I, have a, a, I had and still have this theory that I've got a target on somebody's back, I want to pass them, and I feared the guy who's coming behind me who's going to be better than me. So I think that might be a bit of insecurity, but I just want, I want to progress. I want to see good businesses. Um, insecurity in what sense? Well, 
I, I think if you come from nothing, uh, you, you, I want to be successful. And the insecurity is being not successful in my book. Um, we went on other people's high streets. We were making application against the companies you just said, William Mills, Ladbrokes, Corals. And we would why would anybody want to come out of the Coral shop or the Ladbrokes shop who've been, they've been going in that shop for years. I had to give them a reason. And what I did, I gave bonuses. And that's when we, we became, the, I became the bonus king. And we needed a hook to get them out. And you still need that hook. You've got to be different to everybody else, in my opinion. That's a fascinating mindset, yeah, isn't it, no, John? Well, the, I, the insecurity I, side of it. Yeah, for sure. And, and being hungry and where hunger comes from, like in, in anybody, in any walk of life, you, you need hunger and appetite to, to move, to progress and to be great. And, and I think one of the blessings of a working class upbringing and, and being brought up in the toughest of situations or just in hard situations where you have to hustle and get things going is that it develops that hunger, that appetite, and you've got it ingrained. Look, it fascinates me. Look, we've got a guy here from, from Manchester who was from... Salford, don't offend him. Salford, Greater Manchester, sorry. You look, from limited means, who's then taken to business, turned everything that he's done into gold. And it just, as a direct comparison, you know, we've got people who are from incredibly privileged backgrounds mm. who, you know, get into positions of power and influence without really achieving anything remarkable. Mm -hmm. You know, and for every guy who does achieve something out of, out of a working class background, there's lots that don't. That's why your story is more remarkable, isn't it? Because you go to Whitehall and in London, there's lots of people who followed a very similar path and it's a path well trodden. Well, Fred, I think the remarkable thing about your path is there's nobody trod that path other than you. You know, you talk about being a boss and being your own boss. Well, you know, you've got a very unique take on being in charge of a business. You, you know, I would say to anybody, um, if you've got ability, start your own business. What's, what's the worst that can happen to you? You fail. And if you've got ability, you'll always get a job somewhere else. Um, I, I look at it as a trapeze artist who swings out, there's no safety net. So when you fall, you hit the floor and it's bloody hard. Mm. But, but once you've hit the floor and you get up again, I would say, don't go for looking for a job, start again. Find out where you went wrong and do it. It's easy to say and it's not easy to do, but it's there for you. And the market is always, there's always an opportunity every single day of your life yeah. to do something. And I think that's one of the things that maybe defines the working classes that, you know, as opposed to, to, to everybody else, is that there is a safety net there for, for the upper and middle yeah. class people, isn't there? There's yeah, a safety net financially. Look, there's a, you know, there's a, there's probably, you know, family wealth. There's there's housing. There's there's all of those safety nets to catch you if you fall. So, I think to take risks when those safety nets yeah. are there probably sets you out so far above. The well, that's crowd. what intrigues me about Fred is that you have this fascination with risk. And you always have done. You, you, that's where you get your kick. That's where the enjoyment comes from, is the risk side of things. Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> something that was said to me 30 years ago about cash flows. Um, businesses fail, not because they're not making a profit. They fail because they run out of cash. Mm. So from that day, I kept every single cash flow and I updated it for, for the last 25 years myself, the last five 
10 years, somebody else has done it for me, but yeah. I still do it every week. Yeah. My best times is when I think by December, and this is November, I've got to find three million quid. Where's it coming from? <laughs> I get the edge on that. I get the kick out of doing that. Now, when you get too fat and you've got tens of millions in the bank, you get lazy. You've not got the edge there. So the last thing I ever want to do in my life is have anything in a bank. Because why do I want to be earning 1% in a bank when yeah. I can be earning 25% in a business and paying 8% on my money? So that's your business brain speaking and compound interest and something you understood at a young age. Yeah, I, compound, yeah. I mean, that was one of the greatest things that ever was taught to me. What's compound interest? Well, you put it in the bank, you give them 5%, next year it's £1.05 getting the interest. And that, I think that was part of uh, the growth that is inside me, mm -hmm. wanting to achieve and be successful on it. Fred, just shove that mic right under your mouth just so we, we oh, don't miss any words. Okay, okay. Um, I want to take you as well to a moment, and I don't know if this, this is hard for you to talk about today, but it's a big part of your story. Um, in the 70s, where you nearly lost your life in, in a bookies, in your bookies, and your, your pregnant wife at the time, Mo, witnessed this attack. Yeah. This was all to do with a bet on um, a Leicester Pigot horse. It was. And you were stabbed five times, you needed 32 stitches. Yeah. I mean, an incredible lucky day for you in the, the in the end that you didn't yeah. lose your life Fred. yeah he um it was in salford we had probably four or five shops then uh, a man in salford sends another man into uh, one of my shops with 50 quid on, on a horse being run in the guineas by lester piggott run rode by lester piggott and he instructs the man if it's worse than two to one on mm. don't back it and it was four to nine, which is worse than two to one on. The guy sent didn't understand, but places the bet of 50 quid. They're halfway round and he comes in. He wants to call the bet off halfway through the race. I said, it's too late. You should have come before the off. Anyway, it gets beat. He goes into the, the shop, which was in Chapel Street, Salford. And he kicks off there. The police are called. He's thrown out of the shop. He comes to the shop that I'm working at in Salford. And um, he says to me, I'm the guy who's had this 50 quid, he's going to give me the money back. So the next thing happens, he throws a punch at me, just catches me on the head. I have a scrap with him in the shop. Police are called again, he's thrown out. Goes back to the first shop, kicks, up, kicks off again in that. He's thrown out for the third time by the police. The police were wrong, but not to take him in for the night. So 6.30, uh, we've just shut the door on the shop that I'm working at. A knock comes to the door. We're just counting the cash. He, uh, I open the door, he's there. He's got a newspaper in his hand. And what I didn't know, he's got a knife in his hand as well. So um, he said, are you going to pay me? So I said, no. So the next thing, the knife comes out and he stabs me three times in the head, once in the back and once on the hand. And... Um, there's blood all over the place. I pick a piece of wood up to give him a crack on it and somebody stopped me doing it and I'm glad they did because mm. I'd, have, I'd have killed him with it. Um, the, my wife that week had bought me a cardigan and she paid a lot of money for it and he'd ruined the cardigan with all, the, <laughs> all these stab wounds all over the place with it. Um, she's, she's eight months pregnant, sees all this, she's screaming in there. 
I go to Salford Royal Hospital and I've got 32 stitches put in me. And the surgeon said to me, if that w would have been half an inch higher, you're dead. It's gone into your brain. So it was that close. I was stitched. The guy gets four years. I mean, that's incredible in itself, isn't it? Yeah, he got four years for it. Uh, the day he comes out, he phones me up. He wants his money back. He didn't. He phoned me up. He said, he want, I want my money so back. So for four years, he, he's he, been he knew in you were the bonus king, didn't he? He wanted, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He wanted value. So I asked a couple of my pals, would you go and have a talk with him? So they went round and had a talk with him. And he disappeared from Manchester after that. He went living Sounds in Blackpool. Like a, that's a strong talk, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah well, he, he, <laughs> it's, the, it's the tone you use. And, it, <laughs> and, right? and incredibly, so, you'd, only, you'd only just got out of an, a jail sentence of four years before that. He'd done four years before. First he, day fractured he, fractured a, he fractured a guy's skull with a... You know the starting handles that they used to have on cars? Yeah. put it over a guy's head and fractured his skull. It, you see the best and worst of people, I'd imagine. At that time, in those betting shops, <laughs> you'd, you'd just see a, f a full array of characters, yeah. right? You, you know, um, I was at Cheltenham last Friday. 99.9% um, .9 of punters are fantastic with me. Mm. You just get the odd one, and you just got to wear that. But most people are good. Mm. Um, I, I've, I've been threatened a million times in my life. Um, we used to... In the illegal days, we used to have the shop and we used to have rubber truncheons under the counter mm. just in case it kicked off with it because I was on in Salford on Cross Lane. The docks were, were yeah. just down the road. The dockers used to finish at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, go in the pub and they were drinking, drinking, drinking. They didn't know what they were doing. Anything went wrong, that was the time it was going to go off. Yeah. So you, were, you had to look after yourself. Gosh, you know, got you, one, there's not one under here, Fred. I've not brought it with you, just in case. You, know, you, you need some heavies around you, though, Fred, don't you, at times? I mean, yeah. some of the, you know, people know how much you, you, you're worth. I mean, even where you're living and so on, it must be in the back of your mind, especially after attacks like that physically. Yeah, well, listen, you live with it. You live with it. I mean, people say to me, you need more security. I don't want security. I want to live. Yeah. Um, so everyone knows, you know, you, Fred, and knows you for your association and your sort of portfolio of connections with darts and snooker to name a few um and of course rugby league 2017 you got involved with with super league half-heartedly at the time do you admit that to this day yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know i would say um rugby league people have been fantastic with us mm. we got involved in the sponsorship and what i like about rugby league is the people first of all starting with officials and players they always put themselves out for you they've never said no to us They've been as good as gold. We've renewed contracts and we've got a relationship with them. But also, I love the fans, the way they mix. They're not like football fans who are going to go out screaming at one another and fighting. Mm. So that's the sort of thing that it's a working man's game. And I still class myself, or I might be a rich guy, but I'm still a working class man at heart. Mm. Um, I love that. I, I love when you see rugby players, these big guys who don't want to start arguing with the referee. Who uh, I am a sportsman and I, I like sportsmanship. And I don't I hate to see it when you see a footballer screaming at a referee and the referee's teching it. I don't get that. I don't get, you don't get that in rugby league. Mm. And I've had some great times with the rugby league people. I think they're lovely. Why were you reluctant at the beginning to get involved? Because I didn't know whether it was for us, the sponsorship there. 
but you know, it's one of our very best sponsorships. I mean, I, I was in, involved in rugby league before, um, before the sponsorship. When I say that, um, Jackie Edwards, that Sean Edwards' his father, came to me, I can't even tell you how long ago it's that long. Mm. And he was one of the best judges on rugby league I've ever seen. Um, and he used to advise me on, on prices and how to handicap games. And the very first time Jackie Edwards gave me the handicap on the rugby league, it all went wrong. And, and I phoned him up. I said, are you turning me over? And he said, listen, I'm not like that. Let's, let's give it a month. Our relationship lasted for years and years. And Wigan went to Wembley 10 years on the run. Mm. I went to every cup final on Jackie Edwards' tickets. He gave me his tickets to see their Sean play. Amazing. And I remember Sean as a 17-year-old kid signing for him. And unfortunately, Billy, who Jack thought he was going to be better. Yeah, passed away. And uh, he got killed in a car yeah. crash, of course. Yeah, well, now he's, and Sean's has led France to the bloody Grand Slam. Best yeah. defensive coach in yeah. rugby union now. Yeah. For a man who sees value, though, I think him being attracted to rugby league is is it shows you what the sport brings. You know, I, I think in terms of community value, honesty, integrity. You know, all the reasons that as a player you would start playing are really valuable to somebody who's got those same principles. And I think you know, for for yourself, the reason you're involved is actually probably well the reason I think a lot of people love the sport of rugby league. You know, it's got its failings, it's got its problems, all sports do. But specifically rugby league is a working class sport that invests in the communities where it's played. And that, I don't know if you can say that about many sports. But if there's many sports can say they've retained this really strong direct link with the community where it's played. Yeah. There's not many. And if there are, it's been polluted by excessive wealth, huge commercial revenues, superstar players who are individuals and not part of a team. Well, I think Rugby League's got a huge amount to offer for any sponsor, not just obviously Fred. It's interesting that Fred calls it, you know, it doesn't use the word sponsorship, it uses a partnership and a relationship because that's what it is. And what, what have been the biggest challenges, Fred? I imagine COVID smacked in the middle of kind of this since 2017 and what does the future of your relationship with with Super League look like in your eyes? Well Covid did nobody any good I mean it was a disaster for we our shops were closed for months it cost fortunes we we we, we made no money that year but um, I say to you you've heard me say it before I see opportunities every day and I believe that we're providing rugby league wanters will stay in, in there. We're happy for this relationship to continue because they're good people, they're worth backing. And I believe it's a two-way street. I think we've had a lot of good out of rugby league. It's mm. put us on the map. Well, John, even from your point of view, you know, you, you made your living on the pitch and now making it off the pitch. And yep. just that relationship has been so pivotal I guess a lot of players don't really appreciate that but perhaps when you hang up your boots you look back and think well someone like Fred has kept it going at times. Yeah well you're just blissfully unaware of all of it Will aren't you as a player you know I, I, I was fortunate enough obviously when I retired to go into business and I was actually in business while I was playing and you know Fred speaks about cash flow and you know Covid and how that affects your cash flow you know you're, you're learning all of these lessons but as a player really you genuinely ill-informed about the business side of the game. I, I always took an interest in it. I, I, you know, became, 
we came to understand really quickly how important TV deals are, you know, the, the broadcasting rights for the game, the really good quality commercial partnerships that sports form. And I think right back at the start when I started thinking about it, I think that's one thing that stood out as a as a working class guy, I used to look at Rugby Union and think, how you know, how have they managed to sort of get to where they've got? And then I always had this like nagging sort of ambition that I wanted the game that I played to, to get there. Mm. But as a player, you look, you you are unaware. And it's right to, I actually think it's right to be blissfully unaware of those things sometimes. Mm. It's like the boss of a business or the head of a business shoulders a lot of burden of responsibility that everyday work workers just don't need to know. You know, that's, that's, that's the, you know, the, the benefit of being in charge. And I certainly with the game, I think the governing body, the Super League, clubs and their owners they carry a lot of that burden will so players you're not running out onto the pitch wondering if the the club that you're playing for is going to make payroll on the friday mm. you know there's a lot done in in business and in sport to keep the staff who are doing a great job out of all that fred we normally have a third wheel with us a guy called mark flanagan who played for salford uh, and and saints with with john um he probably well he might as well be here today because he doesn't he say a lot here, yeah. you talk about value we don't really get much value from mark really because no, he doesn't yeah. say a lot so uh, but he, he did actually ask me to ask you a question about salford um obviously with your roots there and having been down to the willows as a kid albeit to just pull the wool over people's eyes fred back then <laughs> what what was um in your thinking about never getting involved with the rugby league club before the, the sponsorship deal with, with, with Betfred. But, you know, like for example, Salford Red Devils, why did he never go and, and buy them? Because I was running the business. It was like saying, why did you not buy Manchester United when I had a chance? Yeah. Um, I was building a business. I was just working for the business and I thought my money was better than going in that. And normally, um, to back a sporting club, uh, when, let me rephrase that. To buy a sporting club as an investment is a waste of time. You can only do it when you've got comfort money, when you don't need it. And it was never that way. Um, there's opportunities now, I suppose, if I wanted to do it. And I've been asked quite a few times, why don't you buy Salford? I think it's too late for me now, that's what I would say. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Who, who knows? You know, I would do. If I bought Salford, I'd get the I'd get the Pep Guardiola of rugby league. I'd say, we're going to do something with this club. We're going to get the best because Salford have never proved it. You've got to be better than St. Helens. You've got to be better than Wigan or Castleford or Leeds. That's that's the aim. If it takes five years, we'll do it, but we'll be number one. We've stirred the pot a little bit there, John. Oh, I saw yeah. it. Yeah, I, yeah. no, I could see the I could value. See the you could see the value. <laughs> I could see the temptation in your eyes, Fred. This isn't something you've written off. At 79, you're a baby. You look you look younger than Wilkin. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, I'm still training every day of my life. Yeah. Um, um, look, on, on Manchester United, because those, for those who don't know anything about Manchester United or don't know anything about betting or the north of England, might know you from, uh, and again, I know you said it, over and over again, it wasn't a PR exercise, but it turned out to be the sort of the greatest bit of PR venture. Was paying out on Manchester United, winning the Premier League, 1998. They had a 12 point lead. Arsenal came back and, and won it. Sir Alex Ferguson said to you, Don't you fucking ever try that again, Fred, which you did for about five or six times after that. Um, what, where did that come from? I, I swear to you, there was no publicity angle with that. I, um, I went home, I, I said to you, I watch. Uh, I work every Saturday morning. There was a, an early kickoff, and United were playing. I think we were playing Chelsea, mm -hmm. and we beat them. 
and we'd gone 12 points clear. And I thought, game over, that's it, can't lose it now. So I said, pay out on United. So we paid out on them. Nobody could believe it. It never, ever been done before, paying out, paying out before the result was in. And from the day we did it, United couldn't kick a ball. <laughs> it, was, it was as though I'd put the curse on them. But not only did I pay out on United, I then uh, Arsenal was seven to one to win the, uh, was it the Premiership or was it the, uh, the first division then? The, the Premiership, Premiership, yeah, 98, yeah. So uh, Arsenal was seven to one. I put it to, I pushed the price out from seven to one to nine to one. And then I started having to go Arsene Wenger. Come on, Arsenal, if you fancy your chances, back your team. <laughs> All the Arsenal supporters started back in Arsenal at nine to one. So it's a double whammy. So we, we lost it. I can remember Dennis Irwin, who I loved as a footballer. His confidence had gone. You, they're frank, they're touching the ball. Everything seemed to go wrong from that day. Anyway, we lost the, uh, we lost the Premiership. Arsenal won it. won it. And in two weeks, I did 53 interviews on television, newspapers, radio, from all over the world, from as far as Australia, the Canary Islands, people were phoning It was unheard in. of, wasn't it? No one had done that before. It completely unheard of. And even to this it day... It wasn't a publicity stunt. I swear, it wasn't. I swear to you, it was never... <laughs> what about I'm the eight not, times I'm afterwards? Clever, <laughs> I'm not clever enough to do that. <laughs> but I just... But you know, when in adversity, you find a way of making the best of it. Yeah. Like when Dittori rolled his uh, seven winners... The following week, I went and bought some more shops. You know, I looked for the angle to yeah. get back in there. And punters like the humour in that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, nobody wants to see a crying bookmaker or a moaning bookmaker. No. You make the best of it. And that's the way I've tried to do it in all businesses. You know, you, you're in business on your, on your own now. Yeah. I think business is about problems. It's working the problems out and working mm -hmm. with people. And the number one thing... I say about every single business that you can, it's every business, what makes the difference is the people who are running it. Mm. I don't mean me, I mean the people that you employ, the enthusiasm you put in, the way you look after it. Yeah. Has Pep been on the phone to you? Because you've done it again this year, Fred. And he did it, I think, with City had a 14-point lead about six weeks. As a City fan, I'm getting worried. It's down to one point in Liverpool yeah, to I, come. I paid him out at uh, Christmas and I had dinner with Pep and... Uh, uh, and because I'm doing something with him. Um, you can't just leave it at that. You, hold on, nothing's off. I'm doing something doing what with him, Fred? Can we? I'm doing some charity oh, with, okay. uh, nice. with the Christie Hospital. Oh, what do you think yeah. he was doing? I don't doing know, I just want to know. No, all no, the no, 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 no. You've got to drop yeah. that one there yeah. and not explain <laughs> so what that, it was. That's all it is. <laughs> right. And um, he said, you paid out too quickly. I said, no, you passed <laughs> the post. And since then, Liverpool that have been unimaginable the, the run that they've put together mm. and City just had a little bit of a wobble there but I'm still confident yeah so look you mentioned Manchester United earlier and John I don't know if you know this but Fred had the chance to buy essentially a quarter of Manchester United for a quarter of a million pounds which is absolute penis what 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 year was that was that pre-glazers uh yeah oh well before yeah. that yeah and, and I mean you say you don't have any regrets in life Fred and that there must be, I mean, as a club so passionate. Yeah, but you can't you. live on regrets. No. Oh. You know, you know I, I, I don't, you move on from that. Mm. No, um, I had a lawyer and he phoned me up. He said, Fred, I've got, um, I've got a client who needs cash. Uh, he, he owns 25% of Manchester United. Um, would you like to buy the 25%? I said, what are you looking for? He said, 250,000. Mm. I said, Paul, the guy's now dead. Um, 
I said, Paul, I'm going to invest it in betting shops. Now, that was one of the mistakes. But I've made plenty of mistakes and I still make plenty of mistakes. Mm. And is it a regret? I suppose so, but uh, uh, you, you can't live on regrets. Mm. You move on. I'm, I'm interested, Will, about your relationship with wealth, you know, and, and, and how your relationship is with money now. You know, you, you speak about, you know, coming from sort of limited means. I just wonder what you're taking on wealth is now you're, you're, you're 79 years of age. Let me tell you this. If I walk out of one of my rooms, I switch the light off. Why? Because I, I'll, I'll give you a story. Two, two men in this country, two brothers, who are far, far wealthier than me. I was in their offices a couple of years ago, and we were going out in the office, and he switched the light off. And I knew that's what I would do. So I said, why did you do that? He said, I can remember when we couldn't pay the electric bill. And that's, that's you know, when I said about insecurity, mm. I think that is part of it. Um, I have not needed to work for money for probably 40 to 50 years. If I wanted to, I could have gone and lay on the beach and had a nice lifestyle. Mm. But that's not what I'm about. Um, what do I do with my money these days? Most of it, um, my kids are or the family's well taken care of. But a lot is that, of it, Does that ever come across your... Like, do you ever think about that? Because your story is one from no means to means, and you've got the means now to distribute to your family. Is there a concern there that you're giving it all to them? That, that concern has always been there. Yeah. Um, I made my, all my kids work on fish markets, vegetable markets, betting shops. Um, I, the last thing I wanted to do spoil my kids and it's rich men spoil their kids yeah and i've got four kids i've got no nutcases in the family no drug addicts no putting in people's face i've got this amount of money because i would hate my kids to be mm. like that um but it's not easy no there's so a balance, there's a balance absolutely there's a balance um mo my wife said to me 10 years ago um Fred, when we retire, or when you retire, which I'm not going to do, <laughs> um, will we have enough money to live on? Now, it was a stupid question, mm. but it just shows a bit of insecurity there. We were very wealthy then. And I hate saying we're very wealthy because it sounds conceited and I don't want to appear that way. But, but you are very wealthy, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, you are. You are. No, there's no, no, I know exactly what you're trying to say. For yeah. it. But it, you know, and again, it's it's so unclassy talking about money. But even just for people listening, yeah, you know, on the, the Sunday Times richest last year, it was 1.235 billion pounds. I mean, it's a, it's a sensational. It's kind of an unquantifiable amount of money, isn't yeah. it? To, to, and, and all those questions, like you just said, John, what what does a man do with with yeah. that sort of cash? And they often say, like, you know, the people, the wealthiest are the, are the shrewdest. And that, I think again, that is a something you could speak about for an hour, isn't it? In terms of how yeah. you you see that wealth and how other people see it because it's two very different things. Yeah. It, it, none of it is easy. No. And wealth brings its own problems as well. Yeah. You know, you, you talk about tax advisors and inheritance tax and stuff, blah, blah, blah. Tax isn't fun, is and, it? And is it, it, try, it drives me absolutely mad. I've got advisors who do it. And we're not trying to protect you, Fred. We're protect not, not your kids and your grandkids, the next generation. I said, do you think I'm going to be worried what's going to happen in 40 years' time? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be. 
But you know, it's it's better to be wealthy than skint. Yeah. That's what I would say. And you know, I want what I'd love to do and what I aim to do is carry on making money, as much money as I can, and doing a bit of good with it, as we've done with the Hyde Centre here, uh, or with the Christie Hospital. Uh, I, I, want to, I want to look after people, if I can, working class people. I don't want to be talking to the, the, the wealth of Presbury or Cheadle or Hale. I want to look after Garton and Levenzoom and Fallowfield and Salford. And credit to you, you have done that. And you are, for people should know also, that you are the, the fifth highest taxpayer in the UK above Alan Sugar. It's like a great league table, that, isn't it? It's <laughs> who's not the one you really want to feature. Who's, top, who's on the podium? Who's yeah. the top three? You know, I would say, you know what I would say to you? Um, as a family, we've paid every penny of tax in this country. We've not tried to shelter it. We've not, none of my kids have gone to uh, Jersey or the Caymans or anything like that. We pay a full whack of tax. Mm. And who was it who said... I don't mind people making filthy amounts of money as long as they pay filthy amounts of tax. Mm -hmm. And we can put our head on the pillow at night time and say, we've done our whack. Mm. Um, I guess it's a good, good sort of point to bring in the, the UK government's gambling review. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just interested on your views on it, the impact that that will have <coughs> on you, is having on you and, and the industry, because it's a very topical subject. Well, it is a topical subject. And there's a white paper coming out. Let me tell you this. Problem gamblers in this country represented something like 0.6 of the population, of the gambling population. Um, if you go to countries like China or Thailand, there's no bookmakers there, except there is, for all illegal bookmakers. There's no regulation, there's no taxation paid, everybody's getting bribes over there. We're regulated in this country. We've been regulated since 1961. We pay billions in tax. We're regulated. We look after people. Now, that 0.6 of gamblers over the last couple of years has gone from 0.6 to 0.3. Mm. I don't get it why politicians want to put more regulation on it and drive this business from this country offshore to bet with foreign bookmakers who are not regulated or not licensed in this country who will not pay tax and who won't give a fig about problem gamblers we're responsible people don't drive it offshore that's what i would say yeah. and finally i would say they're talking about affordability i can afford to bet much more than you can afford to bet yeah but, but what they're trying to do they try to say Shows your pay slip, shows your bank uh, balance. No, who, who is going to do that? And then they try to put a limit on of two pounds in slot machines, two pounds in casinos. Nobody's going to. What good would it be for me for playing for two pounds? Mm. You might be able to only afford two pounds, but I can afford a lot more than that. Let common sense come into it and let it be done by evidence rather than emotion. You, you mentioned the word responsibility there, and just playing devil's advocate, there will be people listening to this who, who again, don't know your story, maybe aren't interested in your story, and, and don't like the way that you've made your money in the industry that you've been in. I'm sure you've heard all this before, Fred. What would your um, sort of words to, to these people be? He would say, look, what you, you're part of 
can destroy lives. It can affect people's livelihood and so on. Sorry, what? Can I yeah. jump in there? I, 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 I don't know why we're obsessed with this form of gambling because fucking life is gambling. All yeah. of it's gambling. We've got people who are just hedging our money on stock markets. It's gambling. Mm. Every, every element of life, the current financial system is all based on gambling. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying is if we're going to outlaw gambling like this, which is fun for majority of people, yeah. what we're going to do, outlaw the, the filthy rich people who are making money from spending money they haven't got, banks. Yeah. Are we going to go back and start punishing banks for gambling our money? Yeah. Because it's the, it, it, if, you, you know, if you were, I think if you were really cynical, and I'm not a very cynical guy, Will, as you know, not very cynical. But you'd think that the system, the modern financial system, is 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 just corrupted towards the gambling yeah. that suits the incredibly wealthy people who run hedge funds, who have jobs in in you know in in you know wherever in the financial districts of the world. So does, does that ever weigh on your mind, Fred? That that responsibility that for the, like you said, John says it's for the majority of people, it's fun and everyone's responsible and has a lovely day and goes home. But some people, it, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, let, let me just tell you the story. There's something happened when I was coming to see you today. I got a phone call from one of my shops, not one of my shops, from one of the guys who works for me. Mm. In Coventry, in one of my shops, a man has died. His family have requested that we send a Betfred flag to put over the coffin because he, he bet in our shop for 30 years and it was part of his social. He, his friends were in there. It is a social thing that you do. You know, why should a politician be able to tell you how to spend your money? If you want to go and buy a Ferrari, nobody's going to say, where did you get that 300 grand from? If you want to, it, the worst thing that you can do is over-regulate it and over-tax it because what you do, you drive it offshore. And mm. once it's gone offshore, it doesn't come back. Finally, I would just say to you, last week we saw, uh, we had a site online which was all in Russian, with our colours, Betfred colours, and it had powered by Betfred. It wasn't even ours. Mm. Now, what you want to do is send customers to those sort of sites where nobody's going to get looked after, no taxes paid, no regulation, and nobody will care about your problem, gamblers. Mm. Is it a bleak future for gambling shops then? No, I believe that, that we will always survive. Yeah. I will all, we will always survive. But what I don't like is the prohibitionists, and they are prohibitionists, some of them, failed politicians virtually, who want to bring all this in. Mm, yeah. Um, I was going to say to you, and that's a good question, John, actually, the, the, the future of gambling, the future of bookmakers, because... I remember you saying in the past, and, and bearing in mind, Fred, you've come through the internet age. You didn't, you know, you, it didn't exist when you started, and, uh, and it took you a time to to adjust to that and so on, and even probably behind the likes of William Hill and Labrooks and so on. So, what does the the future of of gambling and betting look like to you in in twenty, in thirty, in forty years' time when you're gone? Well, it depends on what you mean by gambling. Uh, uh, I mean, there will always be gambling, yeah, for, for sure. How how that gambling arrives, I, d I don't know. Probably it will go more and more to the online business mm -hmm. and, and mobile phones. Um, and, and that's what, what makes it difficult for the government to control things in this country. When it was just betting shops that could control it. Now, if you want to, you can go online and there's 1,200 illegal bookmakers. No, not illegal. Non-licensed bookmakers mm -hmm. who, who you can have a bet with. Now, once you've bet with those, Probably you're going to get paid, but 
if, if you, they hit a big one, they might just close up and go. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they won't care whether you're a 13-year-old kid having it with your dad's credit card. We do all these checks and balances. I believe that betting will survive. People that have been telling me for the last 20 years that betting shops are, uh, are going out of business, they're not. Mm -hmm. It's the social side of it. It's a fun thing. And we try and make it fun. Most people in betting shops go in, the average bet is seven quid a bet. Mm -hmm. So that's not, not going to kill people. And I told you, the average, sorry, uh, from the Gambling Commission figures, 0.3%. That's 0.3% are problem gamblers. We pay millions a year to gambling charities to look after these people. Who's going to do that for them? Mm. They will always be gambling no matter what. Yeah. Um, look, on a, on a different note, you, you've always been a, you know, a very generous philanthropist and you've, you've put money in great places. And where we are now, we should talk about um, the hideout youth zone. It would just out, we're just near Gorton, aren't we? Opposite the, the dogs at Bellevue. How, how did this come about? Because you, you put six million quid into here and it's, it's doing some unbelievable things for the, for the city of Manchester and greater Manchester. This came about um, from a man connected with Rugby League, Dave Whelan from Wigan. Okay. Dave Whelan asked me to go and look at the um, youth club that he'd put together with some, uh, probably 20 of his friends in, uh, in Wigan. And I went and I said to my wife, I don't want to go. I was lazy, it was cold, it was a winter's night. I'll be home for 7.30. It was nearly 10 o'clock when I got home because I was just blown away with what Dave Whelan had put together and the enthusiasm he had for, for the uh, youth club there. They'd done everything. My uh, view of a youth club was a table tennis table and a snooker table. <laughs> that was a youth club. Not at Wigan, it wasn't. It was all the, the usual stuff. They had skateboards, they had netball, they had cricket, they had uh, rooms where kids who couldn't even fill a CV in were being taught how to fill a CV in. Mm. They were checking on kids who were doing self-harming. So I was completely blown away with it. And I came home and it just niggled at me uh, for about 18 months. And then I thought, I've got to do something about this. So I marched into uh, Manchester Town Hall and I got hold of... Uh, I got hold of the chief exec there. And I said to him, Sir Howard, um, I've seen this youth club in Wigan. You found me the land in somewhere in Manchester. And what I want you to do, Sir Howard, is give it to me in the poorest parts of Manchester. Um, I don't want Wilmslow or Presbury or Hale, those sort of places, they can look after themselves. And he came up with Gorton. And the land that this was built on was called the, I think it was a swimming bath, called the Gorton Tub. Howard got on the phone to me, said, I've got the place for you. So I said, okay, let's get it going. So. We designed it, and I think we've done a very good job on it. It was built by a company called Domis, which I own. Mm -hmm. But I said to the guys, the one thing, you do not make a penny out of this. And the MD of the company said to me, what sort of business is that, Fred? I said, business you're going to do. Mm. You do not do it. I will finance it out of my own pocket, out of Fred Dome's pocket, not Betfred's, not Domis's. It'll come out of my pocket, but you've got to do it right for them. They did it, and they did it right on the, on, on the button. There was no waiting for it, and 
you know, what we've got here now, I am so proud of. Mm. I come in here, I see these kids, these kids are, are respectful. I've never had a problem with any of the kids. And I think, all right, I've spent six million quid on it. It's the best six million pound I've ever spent, mm. you know, and um, I'm proud of what we've put together here. Yeah, kids, kids need a safe space. Based, don't they in life you know the days particularly these days well, the, I mean, yeah. the days in which you, look, kids are bred in captivity now so they're bred in doors you know using digital technology like and you know my childhood was was defined by being outside all day you know literally my dad's only advice was coming when it's dark and if it was if it was dark when I got in I got in I got belted mm. you know that that was my childhood I drew, drew a tennis court on the road with chalk played tennis in the street I just don't see that is happening. Plus, there's been austerity. We've cut a lot of funding towards, you know, youth clubs and public sort of places for kids to meet. You know, mm. this period of austerity has been tragic for, for all of those things. Yeah. So what we need is private individuals. It's six million quid. Yeah. Six million quid. Yeah. Just yeah. to go and do that. It's well, like mega. Um, we've got six million pounds and it costs us more than a million pound a year to run. We then got. Really? Uh, wow. I, um, uh, not I, my people then went out uh, fundraising, and we got 28 people or companies to guarantee us a hundred thousand pounds over the next four years, i.e., 25 grand a year each. Mm. Um, so that's the way it works. I put, I still put 50 grand a quarter into it. It's working um, so much so that. I got all the Salford Council and said, give me the land and I'll build one for you. Um, I've come to an agreement with Salford. It's, it's going to be built. We're going to start May next year. I'm going to put one into Salford. But this has been a huge success. And the people here, the staff, we've got staff and volunteers. They are brilliant. Yeah. They are and how brilliant. amazing to be able to do that in your back garden in Salford as well. Yeah. You know. Yes, I'm a Salford boy. Yeah. And people say to me, why did you build it in Gorton? Why not Salford? Well, Salford's next in, in line. And maybe it'll be better than this because you learn from what you've done. And it's I a ask, trial run. It's just yeah. a trial run to get yeah. it right for Salford. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to make it better. Fair play to you, had an amazing job. Um, look, you, you've, you've had an amazing life, really, haven't you? You would say that, you don't need me to tell you that. It's a loaded question in that sense. Um, and look, ups and downs. You, you lost your lovely wife, Mo, a few years ago. I mean, I can't imagine how, how heartbreaking that must be because you were, what, 60 years together? Yeah, let me tell you this. I was the luckiest man in the world. What you don't, and you should realise it, is this. You mm. don't know what you've lost till it's gone. Mm. And I had a 60-year-old love affair with her, um, she was my first cashier. She was my first cleaner because I couldn't afford a cleaner and I couldn't afford a cashier. I'd come home at night time and she'd put me dinner on the table. She'd get in the car and go and clean the shop. And she kept my feet on the ground. Mm. And she was working class like me. Yeah. And I miss her. Still a long way to go for you. But when you look back on everything, happy? You've got to be, haven't you? I mean, what, what, what a journey, what a ride it's yeah, been. Yeah, I've had a great time. And I'm still having a great time. I'm still, luckily for me, I'm still fit. Um, in the last five weeks, I've been in Dubai, I've been in London, I've been in South Africa, I've been in Gibraltar, and I've been in America. <laughs> a mixture of work and, uh, and play. And so, I, I want to keep doing it. Yeah. What a life. Yeah. What, what, what do you, I know this is a really difficult question to answer, but what do you want your legacy to be? You know, when, when people are Googling you in 40 years' time, 
Does that bother you? No. Do, I mean, you're leaving it right here because we're in the middle of it. No. Uh, I don't think I've been a bad man. I think I've done some good things in my life. Uh, uh, you know, bookmakers uh, get a bad rep and I don't think they deserve it. I think we're decent people and I think we're people of our word and I always have been. You know, um, I'll just tell you one little story. I've got a company that in the financial crash in 2009, 8-9, it lost... Um, there was a mixture of getting the business wrong and there was some fraud in there. And there was a black hole. And I got on the phone to my brother, Peter, and I said, there's a black hole, Peter, we're gonna lose a lot of money. He said, how much? I said, I don't know. I said, but the advice from our accountants was, give the keys back to the bank, let it be their problem. I said, we don't do that. And Peter took 10 seconds to say, we don't do that. The black hole was 23 million pounds. The only people who got hurt with that was the Dome family. The banks got paid a pound in the pound and I was pleased that we did that. And one thing it did do, when I tried to raise the money to buy the tote, which was 260 million, in the worst financial crisis uh, for the last 100 years, it wasn't difficult to get the money because the banks trusted us. So it just shows if you stick to your word, and you don't try and cheat, it's there for you. Yeah, I think people uh, definitely appreciate that about you, Fred. Thank you so much for spending Amazing. the last hour or so with us. We could sit down here with you for about 10 hours, Fred, because you've got stories coming out your ears. Um, thank you so much, and um, we'll speak again soon. And watch this space, Salford fans, hey? Yeah. I, saw, I could still <laughs> see him smiling somehow. Yeah, okay. Started here. Uh, I've, I've loved talking to you, thank you. We've yeah, loved cheers, it, thank Fred. you. Our okay. pleasure, thank you, Fred. Okay.